1: is someone capable here of explaining what racketeering is? I think it's actually worth just like explaining what racketeering is because I'm not sure I know. And I've
2: done some reading. It's originally used to prosecute tennis players. Yes, yes, yes.
1: (laughs)
3: Did you, there's a there's a there's a press conference that Rudy gave in I think 2016 that someone pulled up where he's saying like I know Rico I've prosecuted Rico and I you know sure that yes. Hillary Clinton did the Rico, and, uh, <laughs> Rico how I don't how, know. how the tables have it's turned like a, it's sir. like a
1: dance move one Rico two Rico three racketeering you don't want my Macarena but my racketeering oh macarena. racketeering oh okay. I don't think so <laughs> I think screw we're good screw you Anderson.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the virtual studio with all of my co-hosts, including Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to be joined once again by our Fulton County et al. correspondent, Anna Bauer. Anna, thank you so much for coming back on Rational Security.
0: Glad to be here.
2: Where in the American Southeast are you located currently?
0: I am currently in Atlanta, um, but I'm going to my parents' house in Gainesville today. So I'm excited to see them and to see my dog because I have been gone so much to various uh, Trump-related litigation happenings that I feel like I have not seen them in a while.
2: Yeah, I will say, I think if this trial schedule does not interfere with Donald Trump's uh, liberty and freedom, it certainly is interfering with yours, uh, <laughs> at least, if nothing else. And I'm not sure you're going to survive it, but we admire your, your stick to in spite of that risk.
0: Thank you. I, if if the, we really have like 19 arraignments for these people in the next month, I think that I just might <laughs> collapse from exhaustion.
2: We don't have to go to all of them. It's okay. We'll get some interns. We'll just superimpose Anna over some stock footage we download from CNN. Don't tell CNN. Uh, I'm sure it's fine. We'll trade them for a spot up in the line. Well, regardless, we are thrilled you're here because, of course, we got big news that we've all been waiting for and talked about many times on the podcast before out of Fulton County this past week. And that is just one of a couple of big national security stories we are going to talk about. And what we are calling in honor of this week's Georgia events, the Donnie with the gold hair edition, because of course, the uh, indictment of former President Trump in Georgia coincided with the people leaving a Beyonce concert a few blocks away, creating what in my mind is the ultimate mashup that we've all truly been waiting for. Crossover event of the season, the crossover event of the season. Exactly. With that, Topic one is waiting on a midnight complaint in Georgia late on Monday night. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis finally indicted Donald Trump alongside 18 co-conspirators for attempting to interfere with the state of Georgia's 2020 election results. What does this fourth criminal indictment mean for the universe of legal cases against the former president? Topic two, the hunter becomes the hunted. Earlier this week, Attorney General Merrick Garland took the unexpected step of appointing Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss as a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. What led to this move and what does it mean for the investigation into the president's son? And topic three, why Osivius. President Biden has finally issued a long expected executive order installing some controls on outbound U.S. investments, particularly in relation to China and certain sensitive technology sectors. How big a deal is this new policy? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So obviously, there's a huge amount in this story, and
1: I actually want to avoid getting too into the legal weeds about this indictment, um, mostly because Lawfare has done sort of amazing reporting on this. Um, I guess on on Tuesday, we released an extremely long, detailed piece co-written by the the three of you and others uh, at Lawfare going through the indictment in detail, discussing the factual allegations, the, the legal issues, the statutes. Um, And we'll be doing a lot of detailed podcasting about it. So what I want to do now is kind of what I did actually the last time Trump got indicted, which is just an amazing sentence. I just want to say the last time Trump got indicted. I think we should never never stop being entertained and appalled by that sentence, Um, which is to go around and get from you your sort of gut reactions and what you found notable, what your sort of big takeaways are. Um, Because, of course, we've been thinking about this for many, many months, you know, more than a year now. It's finally happened. And you know, I'm, I'm sure that you all have a, a lot to say. So I'm just going to go around and get the top of your mind views. Um, I will also say bonus points. I will award three gold stars to anyone who can cogently explain what racketeering is and how it is and is not the same as conspiracy, because I actually think that it is really, really important uh, for us to get a handle on the marquee charge, despite racketeering being a famously slippery and difficult to define concept in criminal law. Quinta, let me start with you.
3: So I'm I'm not going to attempt to explain racketeering, which, as you say, is a charge so slippery that there's a whole joke about how it's never Rico and doing the Rico.
1: I I think that refusing to explain racketeering may well be a form of racketeering.
3: (laughs) Well, I recently learned, um, as I'm sure Anna knows as well, that there were, once upon a time in Georgia, three uh, court reporters who were charged with Georgia Rico for making the font too big. So... You joke, and yet.
0: And also, don't forget the teachers who helped their students cheat on the, you know, uh, statewide test, and they were also charged with racketeering. In Georgia, you know, you can you can be charged with racketeering for pretty much anything. It's not, it's not like the federal system where I think that it's a combination of the statute being a little bit more narrow and then, and then also, you know, prosecutorial discretion being maybe a little bit more tempered. Um, So it, it, yeah, it's quite common in Georgia to use the racketeering statute for all manner of, of conduct.
3: So in terms of what the statute charges, I think we were expecting kind of a big sprawling indictment that is the Fani Willis way, and specifically the Fani Willis Rico way. And there had been reporting that there were going to be, I think, up to twenty co-defendants. I think we ended up with nineteen. What really jumped out at me, and this is something I mentioned yesterday on the Lawfare podcast, is. Just how sort of wide-ranging the indictment is. Uh, Jack Smith's federal indictment for January 6th, obviously there's only one defendant, Donald Trump, and it's very, very sort of narrow and precise. Um, It talks about a very, very specific pattern of conduct on Trump's part in terms of his efforts to hold on to power. It's uh, pretty short and sweet. This indictment is 98 pages. It covers just a huge range of conduct, not only in terms of what it's describing, in terms of the efforts to pressure state legislatures into appointing pro-Trump slates of electors uh, into the fake electors plot, into the plot to pressure Mike Pence, um, but it also includes a lot of details on uh, an alleged breach of voting machines in Coffee County, which Anna has written about and which we can talk about, which is sort of related but Separate, And also the sort of prolonged harassment and intimidation of Ruby Freeman, who, if listeners recall, was a Georgia election worker who, along with her daughter, Shea Moss, testified before the January 6th committee about how they were kind of singled out by Rudy Giuliani as... Engaging in election fraud um, based on video that Rudy was misrepresenting, and that this led to just a cascade of threats and harassment against them. And according to the indictment, also a group of people essentially showing up at Freeman's house, allegedly bothering her and her neighbors, and trying to get her to testify falsely that she had been involved in some kind of chicanery. And that does not make it into the federal indictment, although I believe the federal indictment does include a note about at least one election official who received threats after Trump kind of went after him. I believe that's Al Schmidt, I think is the name, in Philadelphia. Um, And so that it kind of takes a wider view of what's happening. Um, I think some of that may just be because, as we were saying, the Georgia Rico statute is really expansive. And so if you're thinking about what you can charge criminally, as opposed to what was just you know bad, um, there's a wider range of what falls under it. But it's nevertheless striking how differently they read.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that that captures really a lot of the essence of what's notable about this indictment. The thing that really struck me is it is kind of the ultimate manifestation of kind of the uh, different approaches that we've seen from the different indictments, right? We have the January 6th indictment, which is essentially three overlapping conspiracies covering all sorts of facts, but really just alleging three crime, tr- crimes just by Donald Trump. We then have the Mar-a-Lago indictment, which is actually much more specific, Um, a couple of overlapping conspiracies, but kind of small conspiracies between Trump and Nauda and their third new new, uh, co-defendant, you know, focusing on just aspects of hiding the documents, really focusing on very specific acts and specific classified documents uh, that were mishandled by former President Trump. You have the New York indictment, which similarly kind of takes a prior, what was kind of one unified scheme to hide the payments um, and then brings a number of charges for different individual acts that were part of that scheme um, in a way that's not Unusual for state criminal law or criminal law generally, but is a a particular strategy strategy to say, like, all of these acts are individual violations. And then Fannie Willis did all of that. (laughs) She took all of that and crammed it into one indictment where we've got one huge overarching universal RICO conspiracy and then 40 counts of super hyper specific crimes where it gets down to the fact that, again, one individual is charged for going to Ruby Freeman's neighbor's house one day, and then on a s- totally separate cr- count of the same criminal charge for going back the next day and knocking on Ruby Freeman's door, right? Two very closely related activities. Nope, each one is considered a separate act. Similar to, and you'll see the overlapping conspiracies, so the people involved with the Coffee County scheme that Anna's written uh, about for Lawfare, you know, we see our accused of, I think it's six overlapping conspiracies over essentially the same facts, very small variations about what the overt act is, but essentially overlapping conspiracies. Fannie Willis is going for it on all fronts. Um, She is kind of maximizing her chances of making something stick. I don't think that means it's unstrategic. That itself can be a strategic move when you're talking about a case that's complex and controversial and kind of unprecedented as this, particularly as it relates to the former president. And she's pulling in all these lower level people for reasons that, I'm a little curious to see what she does with it. It seems like it's intended to maybe put pressure on people to flip or cooperate. That makes some sense to me, um, but also presents a lot of complications for the trial on a lot of fronts ranging from scheduling to removal and a bunch of other issues. So we'll have to see where it goes. I mean, we opened our piece kind of saying, we don't know whether this is a move of prostitute brilliance or immense overreach. And I think that's probably right. And to some extent it might, might be both. Um, my suspicion is this is a, a, instrumental and strategic indictment, but with the goal of making prosecution stick on some part of it, uh, not necessarily the whole universe down the line and presenting kind of maximum threat up front without real expectations that all of it will go through as articulating the indictment in the back end. In other words, there's a lot of belt and suspenders and you only need one to, to hang. Anna, what do you think?
0: Yeah. So I, I agree with you, Scott. I think that it's, and as we write in our piece, you know, it's an ambitious document, but also one that is difficult to determine right now how much of it will stick and and just how complicated it will be and how many challenges will come from that. I will say I haven't been able to confirm this but I, I suspect that the document was written by John Floyd. he is a Rico specialist in Georgia who's a quite quite famous um, amongst Georgia. Rico specialist, um, insofar as you can be famous amongst Georgia Rico specialists, but, um, he kind of wrote the book on the statute, um, and he was hired by Willis to, you know, write Rico cases in, in Fulton County Superior Court. He's been working on this other gang related case, uh, for Willis. And then now, you know, he showed up at the press conference alongside her on, uh, Monday night. And this, the document itself looks very much like other uh, RICO case indictments that he has written that I know he wrote. He worked on the Atlanta Public Schools test cheating RICO case, which is the case I mentioned that involved the the teachers who were charged with racketeering for uh, aiding students in, in cheating on tests. So I, I think that it wasn't that surprising in terms of what the document looked like and how it read, the way that it kind of just enumerated these m- multiple different acts. But at the same time, it made it quite difficult, I think, for people to read. I wonder if it would have been better to, you know, kind of add a little, some, a little bit more narrative to it before they enumerated all of those various different acts, just so that people could follow it a little bit more closely. In terms of, you know, the sprawling nature of the document, I think you're right, Scott, that it seems geared towards getting people to cooperate. I think that that will especially be the case with some of the lower hanging fruit here, so to speak. Um, So those are the folks who maybe don't have as many resources as some of the people like Giuliani or, you know, Jeffrey Clark or the folks who were kind of in the inner circle of Trump, you know, there are people like uh, Misty Hampton or Kathy Latham or those folks who were involved in the Coffee County stuff who... As far as I'm aware, just simply will not have the deep pockets that some of these other folks will in terms of hiring representation and fighting these, these charges. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, who will end up cooperating and as well to what extent, you know, there could be an element in play of who, who Trump is going to pay legal fees for. We've seen in the Mar-a-Lago case that, that it can be a big factor in, in who ends up cooperating or, or or who doesn't. You know, as soon as they get independent counsel, it seems like people are a little bit more willing to, to talk to investigators. That's what happened in the Mar-a-Lago case with at least one witness. So I, I'm i curious to see how all of that plays out because it does seem like Fonny Willis is maybe not intent on prosecuting all of this but expect some plea deals or expect some cooperation and and you know the question is just how will all of this play out and and how much will that all of these various things delay things because i i think we're looking at a very long time before any of this potentially goes to trial
1: so this is now our fourth indictment and i want to take a minute to sort of think about how this fits in in terms of, let's say, the relative strength or relative danger to Trump, my view, at least, and I'm curious what you all think. Is that this is this is probably, well, I don't know. This is like between it's either either two or three um, in in the list. So, you know, at the very bottom, you have the New York case, which has all sorts of problems and concerns, and I don't think it's been particularly popular from the beginning. I still think the Mar a Lago case is the biggest risk to Trump because. The facts and the law seems so straightforward. Now, obviously, the trick there is you have the classified information issues and you have Judge Cannon. And so all of that is is a wild card. But, you know, at the end of the day, right, I I do think they're going to win on that one just because it's just it's so flagrant. And then you have the two January 6th cases. You know, my sense is that, um, though, of course, a lot of this is going to depend on, you know, us all learning more about Georgia RICO law. Right that that the Georgia law here is probably more expansive and therefore somewhat more dangerous for Trump than is the federal law at issue in the special counsel's case, but that with Georgia, you have removal issues that might cause some problems. But still, the Georgia case is worse for Trump than the special counsel case. So, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say Mar-a-Lago, Georgia, very closely followed by January 6th federal and then the Manhattan DA case. What do people think about my totally invented ranking here?
0: I
3: mean, I think it depends how we're defining, you know, danger to Trump, right? So what I mean by that is that if we could say he will not win, the like 100% certain he will not win the presidency, and no Republican will win the presidency, right? Like, let's say somehow we can look into the crystal ball and know that we're heading for uh, a Biden 2024 victory, then I would certainly say that the two federal cases present more of a problem for him January 6th because it's sort of a very serious charge. Uh, We know this is a judge who has not been taking guff from defendants and similar January 6th cases, shall we say? Um, She seems very interested in moving it quickly in Florida. As you say, there's the sort of judge cannon issues. There's the SEPA issues, but those were serious charges and they come with like serious time, especially for somebody who is in his seventies. Right. On the other hand, Trump might win the presidency. Um, I don't think it will happen. You can all make fun of me if it does, Uh,
1: but he could. We're all going to be weeping and gnashing our teeth far too hysterically to be making fun of you for anything.
3: (laughs) Another Republican could win the presidency and pardon him federally. And so I think that the federal cases, there's sort of this like weird, ambiguous space where in some ways they're more serious and for any other defendant would present a more serious threat to their liberty. Um, But for Trump, because of the potential of a pardon or if he's not convicted uh, before the election, just a Trump or another Republican just telling DOJ to ordering them to dismiss the case, I think that the state cases may kind of be where it's at. I agree that the Manhattan case... I am in the camp of people who think that we just can't evaluate the strength of that case until we see what Bragg has, and we haven't seen what Bragg has yet, and so I'm going to withhold judgment. But the Georgia case...
1: I just want to say, Quinta, that is very boringly responsible of you, and not at all in the spirit of rat sack spe- wild speculation.
3: Yeah, I'll point everyone to a very good piece by Lee Kowarski uh, that we ran on Lawfare, sort of addressing what we do and don't know um, about the case. Then then, when it comes to the Georgia case, I know, Anna, that there's been a lot of people flinging around irresponsible statements about how much prison time this can lead to or things like that. Um, I, will, I will withhold any comment on that because I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, but it is true that this is an aggressive prosecutor. It's an aggressive case. It's obviously a state case. So Trump couldn't be pardoned by a Republican president. And my understanding, Anna, is that Georgia is actually pretty... Uh, stingy when it comes to the use of pardons, period. And that's not something where the governor can weigh in unilaterally. So even if there were a Georgia governor inclined to grant Trump a pardon, they wouldn't have the power to do so. And so in that sense, I think the Georgia case, in in my view, kind of may actually present the most serious uh, legal and political problem for him.
0: Right. And that's right, Quinta, that, you know, the, the pardon board, and it's a board of five people who are independent. You know, they aren't subject to removal by the governor. So they don't have the kind of political pressures that maybe you, you might think that they would. Um, I mean, I also would just mention anyway that even if the governor, even if Governor Kemp had the ability to, to pardon Trump, I really just, I think people don't quite realize how complicated the politics are uh, within the Republican Party in Georgia. Kemp has no love for Trump. You know, many of that Republican Party establishment within the governor's office and the secretary of state's office a lot of them have been witnesses in the case. They, they have, you know, voiced support for, you know, Trump facing consequences for his conduct. I, I really would be doubtful even if Kemp did have the ability to pardon Trump that he, that he maybe would. Um, but this pardon board, you know, they very rarely <laughs> grant pardons in, in Georgia. And so I, I do not think that, that they would be uh, inclined to do so for Trump. Um, and maybe that'd be the subject of a later lawfare piece. But Quinta, I think that that is right in terms of, you know, it really depends on, the presidency and who wins the presidency in terms of the threats of, of the various cases. I agree, Alan, that I still think that the Mar-a-Lago case is kind of the most cut and dry. Um, Although, you know, as we know, because of the classified information that's involved, you know, it it might just take some time. Um, And so that really makes it, you know, important to know whether or not Trump might win the presidency. Something that I think is is interesting in the Georgia case is that is not in the federal case is that, you know, a lot of these like false statements uh, or false swearing charges, they actually I, I as I understand it will require, you know, showing that these people including Trump uh, for for the charges that involve false swearing that they that he knew that those statements were false, right? And so I, I think that that could be something that is that is different and, and a little bit more tricky than than what is going on in terms of the federal case.
2: I think the key, only thing I would add to all this, which I agree with, you know, it's hard to rank these things. It depends on a lot of factors we don't know about and what happened in the election and et cetera, et cetera. The one thing I'll say in, fr- in terms of a pure getting a conviction standpoint, the biggest threat to Donald Trump is from the Mar-a-Lago case, and it's not the classified information charges. It is the obstruction charges and lying's charges. They are clean cut. They do not hinge in any way on classified information, really. I think you could drop and all the 32 charges regarding the classified documents and still convict on those. Um, I don't think you'd have to bring in the classified information at all. And they involve several people who seem to be cooperating already with investigators and two co-defendants who might feel a lot of pressure to cooperate with investigators as the trial proceeds. Um, so that's where I think the clearest legal threat is in terms of a conviction. But what that ultimately means and adjusting for the canon factor uh, and other factors is is hard to weigh. And honestly, there's, there's just no right answer.
1: So before we move on to the next topic, I, I do want to talk about what I suspect will be the next step in the Georgia litigation, which is this question of removal to federal court. And, and there are two issues here. Sort of one is whether under the law, like this should be removed, whether this meets the the, the requirement for removal under federal law, which to put more concretely, you know, whether or not Trump can make a sort of colorable claim that he was acting you know, in in the lead up to January 6th, as a federal official, and he was doing things, again, colorably within the scope of his official authorities. So that's a legal question. And then there's sort of a second question is, okay, if Trump tries to remove, which he almost certainly will, I think Mark Meadows has already moved uh, to remove this case, should Fannie Willis fight this? Or should she say, you know what, whatever, it's like not that big of a deal. I'm just going from you know one courthouse to like the federal courthouse across the street or wherever it is, um, and I'll just fight this thing in federal court, whatever. Anna, what do you what do you think of both of those?
0: So I I mean I do think, and I want to say that you know there's two different like standards here because and and two different conversations that will go on about whether or not Trump can make a plausible claim. To remove at an as an initial matter and then the later question of whether or not he can claim immunity. And I think those are two different things that are important to keep kind of separate because as an, an, an as an initial matter, you know, it's quite a low standard for him to be able to argue, you know, I I was a federal officer and I was doing these things within the scope of my duties, it's it's kind of just like, okay, have you set out this initial plausible argument, right? And I think that there is a pretty good chance that he can do that, And, and, and I don't think that he maybe will later be able to claim that he's immune for those kind of same reasons. But just as in terms of raising the question, I think that a federal judge who is, who is looking at that might say, okay, yeah, that's, that meets the requirements under the statute. In terms of whether or not Fonnie Willis should just let him remove, I am of the opinion, which I think is is a hot take, but and maybe I'll change my mind later, I'm of the view that she should just maybe let him, you know, I, I think that people are really concerned about the removal question because they are concerned about the federal jury pool within the Northern District of Georgia. The Northern District of Georgia is much more conservative in terms of its jury pool and, and, and in general. But if you look at the jury plan, you know, there's four different courthouses in the Northern District of Georgia. This one would go to the Atlanta Division, which is, you know, a few blocks down the road from the Fulton County Courthouse. And in the jury plan in that division, it pulls from the counties that are very similar in terms of, you know, demographic makeup to Fulton County. You know, there definitely are a few more pockets of of being a little bit more conservative once you get out to some counties, but it's not that much different. Um, so I, I think that the concern over the, you know, more conservative jury pool and jury nullification is not as significant as people think, and then the other thing, too, is that I, I just think that it's going to be so much more efficient to take this to federal court because of the way that federal dockets run compared to Fulton County state court dockets. You know, we've seen in the YLS RICO case that's ongoing in Fulton County right now. They have been doing jury selections since January, and they're nowhere near done. So <laughs> I think if people want this trial to go somewhere within the, within the next um, you know year or two, then, then having it in federal court will be a lot more efficient. However, the downside is that you know, we won't have cameras in court and, and, and media access in the same way as it would be in Superior Court. So that's my thoughts.
2: Just one point of clar- clarification. I believe this is the YSL Rico case, not the YLS Rico case. <laughs> just in case there are any oh Yale law grads God. who might have had heart attacks. Did
0: I say YLS? So I,
2: I, you did. I only this because I was like, really? Have we not made fun, Have I not been made fun of enough yet for this? But it is in fact YSL and not YLS. So if any YLS alums who are like, what did they get up to now? No fear. <laughs> it's just the same old stuff.
1: It's the classic Harvard Law School graduate Freudian slip. Well, most yeah. people
0: think when, when you say YSL, they think like the clothing, the luxury clothing brand right. has been charged with racketeering in Georgia. So, <laughs> but it's, it's, um, an alleged, uh, uh, street gang. Yeah.
1: Do you all know the definition of a Freudian slip, by the way? It's when you say one thing, but mean your mother. It's a terrible joke. That's a really good joke. That I'm is a, also a, solid, father, that's a terrible that joke. That is an excellent dad joke. Listeners, please, please uh, adjudicate this on on Twitter. Was that a good or bad dad joke? Disagree. Good or bad use of dad joke?
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
1: and think about
3: work.
2: Well, from one investigation to another, let us turn our sights away from the state of Georgia and back to our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Actually, what am I saying? A little further north, perhaps even to the state of Delaware. Because we saw another notable legal development this past week where Attorney General Merrick Garland made, I think what to many, was a surprise announcement appointing David Weiss, who is the U.S. attorney for the state of Delaware, for the district of Delaware, um, which overlaps with the state, to serve as a special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. Weiss, of course, has been investigating Biden for a good length of time at this point, was involved in the plea deal that Biden almost struck, uh, then kind of got reversed, and then ended up pleading out to certain uh, tax-related charges on uh, a few weeks ago, and has previously said, I don't need to be special counsel. If there's a reason that I have to pursue charges outside of the state of Delaware, there's another special status I will ask for from the attorney general. At no point do I think I need to be special counsel. Um, This is what he was asserting in letters and responding to questions from members of Congress as of two weeks before his appointment. Um, So something appeared to have changed as the attorney general said it is because of Weiss's request that he is being made a special counsel. Quinta, let me start with you on this. You know, what do you think might have driven this sort of decision and what should we take this as indicative of? Is it a sign of Garland caving to congressional pressure by Republicans? Is it a sign that there are more threads that may be problematic for Hunter Biden and his father, President Biden, coming in that Weiss has uncovered? Where are the tea leaves? What are the possibilities about the significance of this move? I honestly don't
3: think we know very much. It's really it's very hard to say. I will point uh, listeners to a piece that Jack Goldsmith wrote in in Lawfare kind of setting out how to think about this, different possibilities. But you know, Weiss had previously said that he didn't need special counsel status um, in letters to House Republicans who have kind of been pushing for uh, the appointment of a special counsel for Weiss specifically to be appointed as a special counsel. Now, of course, those same Republicans are complaining that Weiss has been (laughs) appointed a special counsel. I don't know either. It doesn't make any sense. Some of it might have to do, as that suggests, with pressure from Congress. Uh, Jim Jordan certainly has been pretty aggressive in criticizing Weiss for not being sufficiently aggressive in his view. It might also have to do with, as you mentioned, the fact that this plea agreement blew up For sort of confusing reasons that honestly seem to have to do with some kind of bizarre miscommunication between the Justice Department and Biden's legal, or Hunter Biden's legal team, excuse me. I did note that uh, one of the lead lawyers on that team is departing. Who knows if that's related, I don't know if this is really this is real speculation, but I did note that the uh, Fifth Circuit held that the gun charge uh, that is involved is unconstitutional under Bruin, which is a real uh, two buttons meme moment for conservative judges and Republicans um, in terms of do you press the Bruin button or the Prosecute Hunter Biden button. So I have no idea if that might have any role to play here, but it is kind of a amusing note and a funny aside and just complicates this additionally. So the long and the short of it is that I have no clue. I do wonder if we are now at a record for special counsels operating at the same time. Um, so we have three, maybe you can count Jack Smith twice. I don't know. Um, and of course, John Durham recently peaced out. Um, I'm not sure if he's still technically a special counsel or not. So possibly four, possibly five, um, which is very impressive. And I think goes to a point that, uh, Jack makes in his piece, which is that we kind of have had special counsel creep, as a, you know, thinking about this position as a way to kind of divert political pressure from the Justice Department, uh, which maybe does not actually work so well and does not solve problems and perhaps creates them. All of which is to say, basically, I have no idea. And frankly, I don't think anyone else does either. But Alan, tell me if I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, no, Quinta, I, th- I think you're you're right. And I also have no idea. Um, again, I, I second Jack's piece. I think it is excellent and really lays out all the possibilities and the and the concerns here. I have to say, I'm left kind of not particularly impressed with how DOJ has handled this. If you needed a special counsel for Hunter Biden, then there should have been a special counsel for Hunter Biden. Like nothing has changed. Um, The fact that this plea agreement blew up and maybe this will go to trial, that's notable, but that doesn't change the underlying question of whether or not a special counsel was appropriate at the beginning. Also, I'm not actually sure that it should be The prosecutor's call whether he is a special counsel or not. I find this whole thing of oh, I haven't asked to be a special counsel yet, kind of a weird way of thinking about it. You know, if a special counsel, if it is appropriate to provide for the independence that a special counsel purportedly provides. Now, bracket whether there is actually meaningful independence here, which is I think an increasingly questionable issue. Then that's up to the attorney general to decide based on his analysis of the situation. Now, I think from the beginning. I always thought it was very strange that the prosecution of the president's son was not going to be handled with as much independence from potential political interference as one can get within DOJ. I'm not sure why they just didn't start with a special counsel.
3: I mean, it is worth noting that the the Weiss, who's now the special counsel is – a holdover Trump appointee to the U.S. attorney role. So there is like, just, I know, I, I'm not saying that that's sufficient. I'm just saying that it's not like he was a, a Biden-appointed U.S. attorney who was conducting this investigation.
1: No, no, I I, I, I totally get that. But of course, the, the whole point of the special counsel is not about who appointed you. It's about sort of what independence you have in a day-to-day, right? And once he held over from the Trump administration, he was just like any other U.S. attorney. You know, t- to me, the, the problem here is that what seems to have changed is that the blowing up of the plea agreement and the possibility that this will go to trial creates a bigger political issue out of this. And because it creates a bigger political issue out of this, then Merrick Garland has like one more lever to pull, which is the special counsel lever. But that shouldn't be the role of the special counsel lever, right? The the special counsel lever shouldn't be the thing you pull when you want to deflect political criticism, what you're doing. It should be the thing you pull when you think the proper administration of justice requires additional independence. So why we're changing this now is not entirely clear to me. But of course, the bigger issue is that it's not even clear what role these special counsels are actually playing. I mean, one thing that I, I did not realize until I read Jack's piece and was kind of taken aback is that special counsels recently have actually, it's very weird, they've not exactly been appointed under the special counsel regulations, which requires that the special counsel be outside the government. They've been appointed under the attorney general's freestanding authority to appoint lawyers to do things for him. And then when he has done that, both Merrick Garland and then in the past Bill Barr, they have applied- And Rod Rosenstein. and, And Rod Rosenstein. They have applied parts of the special counsel regulation by reference, which is like fine, probably. I'm actually not convinced how much the outside the government thing necessarily should matter here. But it just shows that like already the special counsel regulation isn't quite working the way it intended. And of course- Ultimately, the special counsel regulation has always been a weird thing because ultimately the Attorney General is still responsible for all of this. So you have a situation where you're kind of getting the worst of both worlds. You're getting an investigation that probably isn't sufficiently independent of the principles here to assuage even good faith concerns, forget bad faith concerns. And But also, so you're not getting that much from it, and by flip-flopping on this thing, you're questioning your sort of the initial judgment. And so like this whole thing is, is, is a mess. Now, again, I want to be very clear. Like this is a process point that at the end of the day. I think it's like not fundamentally that important. And nothing I say should be viewed as giving aid or comfort to like the crazy right wing conspiracy theories about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and all that sort of stuff. But like Hunter Biden clearly committed a bunch of crimes. Um, he needs to be prosecuted for them. And I'm just really not convinced or allegedly, right? Uh, and it's, not convinced that this has been handled particularly well by the Justice Department.
3: So uh, one just one point to add to that, certainly there are crimes that are alleged here. I don't know if I would be quite so strong as to say he needs to be prosecuted for them because one of the sort of strangenesses of this case is that the crimes he is charged with are very often not charged as a matter of prosecutorial discretion, which I think is just, I'm not saying that means that they shouldn't be charged here, but I do think that... That kind of adds an additional wrinkle. This came up when the plea deal, which is now off the table, was reported and there were a lot of Republicans saying it was a sweetheart deal and then a lot of prosecutors saying it's actually not particularly insofar as normally you wouldn't bother charging such a case. Um, So just flagging that as kind of an additional wrinkle.
1: No, and that's fair. And I, 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 I should correct myself. The the question of whether he needs to be prosecuted is, is a prosecutorial decision question. But we, you know, the government has, appears to have decided for a long time now that he needs to be prosecuted. And so, okay, given that, you got to do it the right way.
2: So I don't. Disagree with either of you on this. I actually want to argue that I think part of the root of the mishandling of this, which I don't think is like an atrocious mishandling, but just maybe not optimal, is probably rooted a little bit in this weird evolution of the use of the special counsel reg that we've seen. Because the original special counsel reg, as lays out, basically gives the AG three options when he's presented with a potential conflict of interest, right? You either can appoint a special counsel, not appoint a special counsel, or you can install a continuing investigation to look at and see whether a special counsel is really warranted or not. And it seems like what's happened here and in a few other recent cases is they've pursued that third route where they've said, hey, we are going to go ahead and begin to look into whether special counsel is really necessary here. And that inevitably ends up bleeding into the actual investigation, which kind of makes sense, right? I mean, this is what we saw kind of happen with Jack Smith, not with Jack Smith himself, but with the Justice Department investigation, right? You saw an investigation being pursued considerations of potential conflicts of inter- in, in, interest playing into that being evaluated by the Justice Department. When push comes to shove and it's time to actually say, oh, we actually do need a special counsel, it's hard to go ahead and just say, well, now we're going to handle hand this investigation that's already substantially underway over to new hands. In the special counsel's case, uh, I mean, Jack Smith, you brought in Jack Smith from the outside. That actually worked. But you kept that's part because you were setting up a big office with a lot lots of people who were carried over from the prior investigation. For smaller special counsel operations, I, I suspect, which I, this one will certainly will be, I suspect that's less of an option, and it makes a lot more sense to say, well, let's just bring one of the most senior prosecutors on board and keep them on board. To continue this investigation, keep it within the department. But that's exactly what isn't allowed to be done under the regs as written. That's why we see attorney generals keep going to their statutory authority and to appoint these people, calling them special counsels, and then trying to import certain reg parts of the regs about independence, saying these apply, ignoring the fact, frankly, that like that means they don't actually apply as effectively. It weakens the deterrent to political influence because. When it's not in a reg, when you're just saying, as a matter of order, these rules can apply, the attorney general can change them much more easily, much less visibly to the public. I'm not suggesting that's happening here. Again, this is pretty established DOJ practice. But it strikes me as maybe if the Justice Department were more committed to the original conception of the special counsel as an outside attorney, that would have forced them to make this decision earlier. And that actually might have been better for them in this case and maybe some of these other cases as well. Instead, because appointing a special counsel is seen as a big move, you know, we see them wait, 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 wait longer and longer, where it becomes administratively much harder to actually do the appointment of a complete outside person, and they end up fudging this with these kind of weird half measures or internal people. You know, long story short, I'm not sure the answer actually isn't kind of more special counsels, just more of the original model appointed earlier in the process that insulates them very clearly for political influence and, and lets these things kind of play out in You know the black boxes that special counsel's offices usually are until you actually get to some point of resolution. You know this case is problematic, but there's a lot of factors, as Quint has noted, that I think suggest this probably is not going to be a really politically hugely politically damaging case for anybody in the Biden administration. I think it probably would have been better for the White House if this had been handed to a special counsel early on, and there would have been much less space for criticism. And frankly, all congressional Republicans would have been able to do is sit and wait for the special counsel to finish their work. But that's not the route that was chosen, and now we're stuck in this kind of half measure that precisely because of all these ambiguities, there's there's a lot that, hey, people can make about how the Justice Department has handled this, even though, again, it doesn't appear to be doing anything unusual compared to what it's been doing under prior administrations in similar cases.
3: From one Biden to the other. We'll take it. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're switching now to more of a sort of foreign policy issue. Um, listeners are probably aware that for the last I don't know year or so, maybe, uh, the Biden administration has really been trying to put pressure on China. By limiting the extent to which Chinese manufacturers can produce uh, crucial semiconductors, this is what the Chips Act um, was about—not potato chips, but computer chips. I got a laugh out of Alan for that one. Um, and good, the, good, good
1: clarification, Quint. I, pre- I appreciate yeah. it.
3: Just, just, just say. Um, and now uh, the administration has added another executive order um, to that pile of orders and statutes. Um, In this case, one that bans new investment by American firms in particular Chinese technology industries. I believe I've described that correctly, but it is quite technical. And so, Scott, let me turn it over to you to first correct me if I got any of that wrong. And second, explain why this is so significant.
2: Sure. You didn't get it wrong, although I think it's worth noting the executive order we've seen and a kind of rules that are being submitted through the notice and comment process in relation to it, that or at least eventually will be, are actually going to flesh out the details. Right now we're seeing very broad outlines of what uh, a regime is going to look like. But we know the basic contours. So the basic contours are that the executive branch is going to be able to use the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, a super broad delegation of presidential authority, of congressional authority, excuse me, to the president over economic matters to first install a variety of reporting and transparency requirements around a certain types of outbound investments, being investments by Americans overseas. And then in particular sectors, potentially block them, uh, maybe even take steps to unwind them or install other sorts of sanctions where transparency measures and blocking measures aren't abided by. I don't think it's actually that controversial, like a use of IEPA, although it is a little strange because it's targeting Americans and American activity. There is a foreign nexus that is a jurisdictional requirement of IEPA, but here the, the foreign nexus is kind of the the lesser of the actor, if you will. You know, it's an American investor who presumably wants to invest this money overseas Regardless, I'm not sure it's legal. It's much more of a policy set of questions than a legal set of questions, at least at this stage, I think. Legally, it seems perfectly sound. R- really, what they're trying to do is that they're saying, well, for any sort of country that essentially is engaged in a, an affirmative policy of trying to match the United States around certain strategic sectors, we're going to limit... And force transparency around investment in those strategic sectors. And identifies three strategic sectors right now, I think, essentially, which is uh, superconductors, artificial intelligence, and kind of quantum processing, quantum computers, although others certainly may be included in that. Uh, And then identifies one country so far, that's China. So it's very much a China-oriented thing, although you could imagine it being expanded to other countries in certain sectors that may be more advanced in this area. So, you know, maybe North Korea, maybe Iran, although neither one really is at a parity where they can realistically challenge the United States. But they certainly would if they wanted would if they could. Um, So maybe this will expand uh, at some point in the future. Not many people try and invest in those countries anyway, so it's not that big a deal. This is often referred to as outbound CFIUS or reverse CFIUS. That's a reference to the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is an existing legal regime that's been around since the 70s that essentially allows for um, the United States to United States government, I should say, to review foreign investments in the United States and potentially block them or even unwind them. And there's a whole voluntary process that provides a safe harbor that companies can go through to prevent being unwound. And the scope of the CFIUS process has grown dramatically. I actually did an interview with Paul Rosen, who heads up that office for the Biden administration, um, along with Brandon Van Grack, one of our contributing editors for the Lawfare podcast a couple of weeks ago, talking about all the new things CFIUS is doing. It's worth a listen if you're interested in this stuff. But this that's a little bit of a misnomer here. Here. It's really, this is addressing the opposite phenomena. This is addressing outbound investment, not inbound investment, but it appears set to operate very foundationally differently than Syphia's because you've got a different toolkit, you've got different concerns, and it's much narrower. The other parts we don't know other than the rules that's a big part of this, is the degree of international cooperation. And we know from the Biden administration that has been a real priority. Um, They have really laid out the idea that If we were to just unilaterally install really broad outbound investment requirements, we'd actually just be hurting the American economy and not doing much to diminish, in this case, primarily China's capacity in most of these regards. We wouldn't be achieving our strategic aim. We'd just be hurting U.S. investors. For that reason, there's been an active diplomatic effort to try and get other countries on board with this. I haven't seen any sign that any of them really are. Although those conversations presume appear to be ongoing, and again, this kind of just starts a process that's going to take months and years to get to a final outcome. So, you know, maybe that's giving them more lead time to get those international sister agreements in place, so that this can be a multilateral effort, not just unilateral effort. But time will tell on that one. We we just don't know the status of those discussions. Yeah,
1: I, I, I. It's really helpful overview, kind of zooming out, I just want to make sort of two points. Sort of one is, I just want to underscore, and this again, not not new, we've seen this for the last several years, just what a dramatic shift this is from 10 years ago, let's say. You know, when I was at the Department of Justice, it was in the second Obama administration. And I worked in the National Security Division. And part of what I dealt with was CFIUS uh, and related issues regarding telecommunications investment. And without getting into sort of obviously details, it was notable just how sensitive the interagency policy apparatus was about the US China relationship and sensitive in the sense of trying not to screw it up and trying not to block Chinese investment and trying not to sort of do all of these sort of things except when absolutely necessary. And obviously that came from the top, you know, by the end of the Obama administration, obviously, I think the Administration and the foreign policy consensus in DC had sort of increasingly soured on the US China relationship, but there was still just an enormous amount of concern and unwillingness to sort of really do much to interfere with the incredibly close economic linkages. You know, obviously the Trump administration did not agree with that view. And what I think is just notable, and again, this is not an original thought, but you know, it is easy to get to, for this to get lost, is just what a continuity there is between the Trump administration of the Biden administration. Not necessarily on the tools used and certainly not on the care and competence in which this strategy is being implemented, but on the view that China cannot be viewed, frankly, as a long-term, forget ally, but even sort of neutral trading partner. Um, Now, the Biden administration is, I think with the term they use is they're trying to de-risk rather than decouple which is like mostly a meaningless verbal formulation. I mean, I think what it's trying to get at is the idea that, you know, they're trying to be proportional and limited in the uh, way that they are going to interfere with or, or, or narrow US-China economic relations. But When you actually look at what de-risking is in practice, it's huge. It's like potentially enormous. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion over the... U.S.'s banning of semiconductor exports to to China or certain semiconductor exports to China is a great New York Times article about this from, from a few days ago that, that's worth reading about the sort of immense impact that this is going to make. This is just another example. Um, and I just think it is it is really quite notable sort of whatever you think about this issue, what a kind of titanic shift this represents. So that's the first point I want to make. The second point that I wanted to make is that related, it's amazing to me how uncontroversial this appears to be. This, this, this reverse... Cepheus EO comes out, it's potentially profound. And obviously, people agree, people disagree. But, like, there's not, you know, what you're not seeing, for example, is any sort of, you know, mass revolt or really loud objection from the business community, from the finance community. And I think that is almost even more telling than the decision by the administration. Um, You know, at the end of the day, Obviously, the administration has a lot of levers to pull, but it's really U.S. private industry and U.S. finance that has a a much larger role to play, both sort of on the ground in terms of U.S.-China economic relations, but also in terms of shaping U.S. policy. And the fact that there seems to be this consensus, again, not just within the government, not within the foreign policy establishment, but at least among a decently broad swath of business and finance that, you know, China is just better not dealt with. That's really quite, quite remarkable. Um, again, part of that is because they're following the U.S., you know, the administration's choices. But I think part of it is also a reflection that the Xi Jinping regime has not been good for China's economic future. That, that, you know, a lot of this is reflecting not just U.S. policy priorities, but the increasingly closed nature of China and the increasing repression, the increasing rule of law issues there. And so, you know, what again, this is more reasons. More evidence that what we're seeing in is not just the, the the decisions of one administration or even two administrations, but of a really long term shift in U.S.-China relations and therefore the global economy. And it's it's just it's remarkable how quickly it happened. Um, you know, from again, I just think of the discussions I had ten years ago, and people were terrified of doing anything that be considered you know a percent of what is happening right now.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not just a sort of change in approach to China although I do think that's part of it I remember having a conversation a few years ago with someone who said that they'd uh used to be one of the more aggressive sort of people on China um on the left and now they were somewhat alarmed by how aggressive uh, people had had become but it's also a, an expression of I think a broader shift away from whether you want to call it neoliberalism or Uh, the Washington consensus, whatever the hell that is, I don't think anybody ever really knew that, you know, it's kind of a broader acceptance of an increased state role in managing the US economy and the relationships, uh, sort of transnational commerce, right?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with, with what you said, Alan, but I actually want to push back on it a little bit. Because my sense is that there's actually more pushback around this than we may see. It's a quiet sort of pushback. Uh, It's often one that's framed less as pushback than as reservations. But the fact that you are seeing... Such narrow, restricted, targeted action, very China specific, and just to certain specific sectors like this. Like, not even, there are plenty of other sectors that have defense ramifications that aren't included, being included in the scope of the executive order, that are being included in some legislation that some members of Congress have proposed, although so far it hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, That could change, though, could really change. You know, it, it reflects the fact that there still is this idea that underneath all the talk about the shift away from the Washington consensus that there is still a commitment to some degree of global free trade and global investment flows. I think everybody accepts that the neoliberal consensus went too far and saying that needs to be unrestricted, that those values, those bring need to be balanced against other things, but there is still a, a degree of commitment to it. Now, maybe that's being bred out. Like Maybe that's eventually going to fall out as a new generation of political leadership comes more and more into power that doesn't care about that stuff. And as you know, economies begin to align with a, a much more balkanized global economy, which is very real and already happening for a variety of business reasons, not a, as a result of U.S. policy regarding supply chain and international sanctions and a variety of other measures. So, so you know, we might see more traject, more kind of movement this direction. But this measure itself, I think, is actually much more calculated and narrow, at least as it's being framed right now. Again, it might change, it might grow, but I, I actually think it's a sign of the resilience of some of those ideas. And I fundamentally don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I'm I am a Guy who probably would qualifies left to center, although I I hate slapping labels like that on myself as a matter of stupid, stupid, outdated principle. Um, but I you know I I still like think markets actually are a good thing. Investment flows are a good thing within limits, within certain caveats, and they've contributed a lot to global stability and global peace in the last century. Um, and you know there's I think too much of a temptation to pendulum swing away from the mistakes of the neoliberal consensus, and I'm glad to see a more measured. Uh, measure like this, which if you read Jake Sullivan's speech from earlier this year that we talked about on the podcast, you could have envisioned a much harsher, much more broad ban on outgoing investments coming out of that. Instead, it appears it's been tapered down uh, in a way that I think is is, is reasonable and reflects um, a lot of calibrating the administration is trying to do from its very strong anti-China rhetoric it embraced, particularly early this year uh, around the balloon incident and and other sort of infamous events. Scott, I'm happy to welcome you into the neoliberal shill club. Thank you. I appreciate it. I got the t-shirt. So, so (laughs) thank you.
1: Was the t-shirt made in China,
2: ironically? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it was. Of course it was. (laughs) Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode, but this would not be rational security if we did not share some object lessons with you to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
1: So I am going back to the well of spy police suspense TV shows. Cause that's apparently all I watch with my wife. Um, we are currently, uh, halfway through suspicion, which is a British, I think it's, I think it's only one season, um, uh, a, a British uh, drama on uh, Apple TV about uh, a number of Brits who get accused of a kidnapping and have to clear their names. And it's all very complicated and fun to watch. Um, uh, hopefully it'll end well. Again, we've only watched the first half. The second half might be a total implosion. Um, but we are really enjoying the first half so far. So if you want some, some light, fun kind of police procedural suspensy stuff, uh, suspicion on Apple TV is, is uh, pretty fun.
2: I will say I did start watching slow horses. One of your old recommendations this week in Alan, and it's excellent. So no, slow, slow I'm horses is really, th-
1: this is not as good as slow horses. Slow horses is, you know, Gary Oldman is, I mean, a uh, national treasure. Everyone's everyone's national treasure. Not our nation, but yes. Not, like our, we're, not, we're, not our nation's treasure. Though you know what, I also saw Oppenheimer this week, and I got to say, Gary Oldman played a just incredible Harry Truman. I mean, it's only like a it's like a four minute cameo. It's the only scene he appears in, but my god, is it good? Is he
2: good as Harry Truman? I love it. I love it, Quinta. What do you have for us this week?
3: I would like to recommend, of all things, uh, a court transcript. Um, this is the transcript of proceedings before. Uh, Chief Judge or former Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Um, And it has to do with a a hearing and a proceeding over uh, whether or not Twitter would hand over material related to Donald Trump's account, um, which we recently found out that prosecutors in the special counsel's office subpoenaed in the course of the January 6th investigation. Um, There's some interesting stuff um, about that you can sort of try to untangle about what that might mean about the course of the investigation, Um, but I would just like to say that the transcript itself of the proceedings is an extremely funny read. Uh, There's one point where uh, one of the lawyers for Twitter gets locked out of the courtroom because he is late and Howell says that her court, uh, quote, waits for no man. There is a point where Twitter says that they're handing over a big tranche of information, um, except that they still need to figure out how to communicate or how to get the data about uh, the gender entry <laughs> on Trump's Twitter account. Um, and there was a point where counsel for the government and counsel for Twitter both admit that they have no idea what a fleet is. If you recall, this was during the like two-month period where pre-Musk Twitter uh, introduced something called fleets that were like fleeting tweets they would disappear after a certain amount of time and it turns out that nobody involved in this proceeding uh knew what they were um including judge howell including the twitter lawyers so i highly recommend it it is a very very entertaining read
2: do you think now they're called flexes
3: (laughs) (laughs) that if they exist again i'm sure that's what musk will call them
2: yeah i like it i like it well for my object lesson uh i have uh been lamenting the passing of Paul Rubens, a comedian known most infamously for Pee Wee Herman, uh, as well as some legal issues that kind of followed him for the last few decades of his career. I have a weird personal history with Pee Wee Herman. I suspect I'm the only one of us old enough to to have this history. Alan might be, but not quite, I think. I think you're just a little too young.
1: Also, the sentence, I have a weird personal history with Pee Wee
2: Herman is one of the more dis- distressing things that I've ever heard. It, come it's, out of your mouth. It's totally above board. It's totally above board. Uh, you know, he hosted a Saturday morning like talk show for kids when I was a very young kid. I was probably too, it was when I was extremely young. So that's why I say, I think even you might be too young for this, Alex, that you're one or two years older, younger than I am. I loved it when I was a really little kid. Then I had this natural kid aversion to it because it's for little kids. Then I thought it was weird as I got a little older. And only as like a teenager and adult that I begin to look back and realize it was actually like really clever adult satire that they just kind of loosely rebranded for kids and was part of a much bigger kind of oeuvre of work that Rubens did. Uh, so I've gone back to revisit some of it. And it's really, really charming and interesting and funny and weird um, in a way that I think people don't fully appreciate. and It's worth revisiting. The best things, I think, uh, Bullseye, uh, a great podcast by, and radio show by uh, Jesse Thorne, did a kind of retrospective on it. He also was the producer on the uh, Pee Wee Radio Hour, Paul Rubens did on KCRW a few years ago, where he was kind of a radio DJ as the Pee Wee character for an hour. That's very entertaining and actually has like some phenomenal riffs on it. But the best thing I found by far that I cannot encourage you to watch enough is that before Pee Wee Herman was a thing, Paul Rubens... Played and I think maybe even kind of debuted the Pee Wee Herman character as a contestant on the dating game in 1976 where he is on a three-gentleman panel you know, kind of courting uh, behind a curtain a woman uh, in Pee-wee character. It's really, really phenomenal. And it's made all the more phenomenal because he is paired with these two other gentlemen, one of whom is the biggest stereotype you could possibly imagine of just a jock and a bro from 1976. The other one appears to be an actual sex criminal. Uh, and so the combination of the three is amazing. Could you come away being like, this lady should choose Pee-wee? 100%. So, Worth watching. Uh, I'll put a link in again. The dating game with Pee Wee Herman. I cannot recommend it enough. Brilliant, brilliant piece of performance art. There, Anna. What do you have to bring us home with today?
0: Uh, mine is like once again. I I have not consumed culture or like anything in the past two weeks because it's all been Trump. Like I mean, this guy won't stop getting indicted, and so my life has just been all about him. Um, have you heard of a little so, show called
2: The Apprentice? You've got like 14 <laughs> seasons you can stream in the background.
0: So, um, I am going to have to make my object lesson once again about what I'm eating or drinking at the courthouse while I'm waiting on Trump to be indicted or be arraigned. So, on uh, Monday, you know, we were expecting it to come on Tuesday, actually. So, I stayed up all night the night before and working on the Coffee County piece because we were trying to get that published um, before Trump got indicted, which we expected to occur on Tuesday. So I took a red eye from San Francisco where I was for my friend's wedding. And I was up all night while I was on the plane, like working on this piece, I got to the airport and then I immediately went to a coffee shop and I was working on the piece thinking like, okay, we got to get this out this afternoon and you know, whatever. And then I started getting texts from other reporters who were like, Hey, you, you need to get over here because things are moving more quickly. So I ran over to the courthouse and we were waiting because we thought something might happen, you know, pretty imminently. And every time that, you know, we thought something was going to happen or that the last witness had gone, you know, it would be like, oh, no, no, no. There's more time. There's one more witness. Um, So we're waiting and waiting. and I had not eaten all day. And I ended up uh, with Michael Isikoff, uh and Daniel Claidman, who are two reporters who are writing a book on the Georgia case. We ended up ordering a Papa John's pizza from uh, Uber Eats. And I have not had a Papa John's pizza in like years, like since I was in high school. And it was just the best thing in the moment. So I gotta hand it to Papa John's. Like they're still they're still doing it. Um, so I guess that that's my object lesson. Sorry, it's not a good one, but a hot pizza after while you're waiting for Trump to be indicted is is um it's really good.
2: I hey, there's nothing wrong with endorsing pizza. Uh Papa John's is a special <laughs> choice. <laughs> we'll we'll take it. That's right. Look, that that garlic dipping sauce forgives all sins, is what we'll say about Papa John's.
0: <laughs> If you actually wanted me to recommend a good pizza, the, the pizza I wanted in Atlanta that is very good pizza is Rosa's, but Rosa's was closed. Uh. So we we couldn't get Rosa's. And um I'm I'm the type who loves pepperoni and pineapple. I know it's a it's a hot take, but I did not suggest that uh to uh Michael and Daniel because I knew it was it was gonna be controversial, so we just went with pepperoni.
2: I think, I think that's okay. You can you know, just keep a little can of pineapple on you in the next indictment we get, and you can just throw <laughs> it on there, maybe plan B. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on our other phenomenal podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, by which I mean, of course, X at RATL security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music as always was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Ellen and Quinta, and our special guest, Anna Bauer, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.